Before we start, I want to tell you about Parents Making Profits, hosted by Mario Armstrong and James Oliver Jr., and brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. In each episode, hosts Mario Armstrong and James Oliver Jr. talk through topics, giving you insight and advice, helping you be the best parent and entrepreneur you can be. Here are some episodes to dive into first. How can you avoid the toxicity of hustle culture? How to get PR for your business without a publicist. Another one, four tips for you to be an effective parentpreneur. If you want tips and deep dives from entrepreneurs and business icons, check out Parents Making Profits wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Business Made Simple podcast brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. Every week on the show, we coach you to build your business like an airplane. The cockpit is your leadership. The body is your overhead. The right engine is your marketing. The left engine is your sales. The wings are your products and the fuel tanks are your cash flow. If you master the six parts of a small business, your business will fly far and fast. Every week, we help a business owner just like you optimize their airplane. I'm your host, Donald Miller. Today, we're going to talk about leadership. We're going to be in the cockpit. And specifically, we're going to talk about what to do when you encounter serious disruption, when there is turbulence and the plane uh, feels like it's going to go down. How do you handle that? Jason Pfeiffer is our guest today. He's the editor-in-chief at Entrepreneur Magazine. He's got a new book out called Build for Tomorrow, and it's all about change. It's all about how to handle disruption and how to stay alive. And listen to me, if you don't know how to do this, the days of your business are numbered because it will be disrupted. I think of this conversation like a self-defense class, and uh, you're going to get some practical tools, some practical ideas on how to defend yourself against disruption and change just from this conversation. And so when it happens to you, you are going to be ready. Here's my conversation with Jason Pfeiffer. Jason Pfeiffer, I'm so glad to have you on. I, I can't think of a topic that is uh, probably more necessary right now coming through COVID and into a potential recession than this idea of accepting, embracing change. Your book is called Build for Tomorrow, and it's really all about the need to change and the need to embrace it. I'm glad to have you on. Tell me why this book is so important in this moment. Well, I, so first of all, I really appreciate that. And I think you nailed it. I had this fascinating experience in COVID in that I was seeing how everybody was going through the same change at the same time, but they were reacting very differently. And the more that you could study what people were doing to move through moments of massive disruption faster, I think the more we could learn how anybody could do that. What, what, what I found was that everybody, didn't matter if they were running a you know, a kind of massive venture-backed company or if they were they were just running a company on Main Street. Everybody was going through change in the same way, which is to say there are these four phases that I found. Panic, adaptation, new normal, and then wouldn't go back. That moment where you say, I have something so new and valuable that I wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had it. The difference was, how efficiently can people move through it? And how much belief do they have that there is a wouldn't-go-back moment waiting for them? And I, I wanted to I wanted to capture what the best and most adaptable people were doing so that everyone else could learn from them. This to me seems like it's necessary reading for every leader, period, so that they can remember it when the time comes. It's almost like a self-defense class <laughs> that you, yeah. you'd want to take. So, you know, if, if, a, if a mugger comes out behind the trash can, you know exactly where to karate chop them. You're right. A lot of this comes down to, can you can you shift your mindset so that you are 
thinking of yourself as an ever-evolving being, uh, as, a, as a product in what Reed Hoffman likes to call permanent beta, uh, so that you are making yourself more adaptable for the future, rather than trying to figure out what to do when you're all turned around. Well, you talk about the four phases uh, that you go through, and you, you even mentioned them here. You know, there's this panic, there's a, a kind of uh, acceptance and, and adaptation, and then there is uh, a feeling that this is the new normal, and then a feeling that you never want to go back. As, as I read that, I, I literally thought that's exactly what happened to me and my company mm. when COVID struck. We were 85% dependent on people getting on airplanes, flying to Nashville, Tennessee for workshops. And it stopped. I mean, it just immediately stopped. And I paced the living room at night. And in fact, I remember one time pacing the living room, wondering whether or not to wake up my wife at 3 a.m. because I couldn't breathe. And Thank goodness I Googled the symptoms of a panic attack and realized <laughs> I did not have COVID. <laughs> but, you know, it, it led to our team circling the wagons and saying, hey, wh what does this make possible? And we came up with some strategies to get through it. And I literally thought, okay, if we, if we have about a 50% decrease in revenue, we will still survive. Nobody will have to be laid off because we have really great profit margins. And then, of course, I liked the new normal and would never go back and don't intend to go back. My question to you is this, though. What have you found? What kind of people make that journey quickly and what kind of people don't? So it's a really good question. I think that one of the first things that anybody needs to do to become more resilient is to clarify in the, in the crispest possible way what their value is to others. Because I think that we often make the mistake of identifying too closely with the output of our work. So therefore, if we say, what I do is that I produce this, or I, I, I provide this service in this way, well, then if that changes, you feel like your very identity and the value that you bring to people is, is gone, is, is disrupted, eliminated. What I found is that there entrepreneurs who I meet who I, I, I think are you know, particularly resilient, are people who have clarified what their value is in a way that's deeper, in a way that's down to their core, right? It's like, it's like what is the core thing that you do that is, that is so inside of you that it drove you to develop the skills that enable you to do the tasks that enable you to provide that value to people? I'll, I'll give you one very quick example. I in the earlier days of the pandemic, was talking to this guy, Greg. He's the CEO of a company called Foodsters. Foodsters they started as a baking mix company. Uh, so you go to Whole Foods, you know, you buy a chocolate cake baking mix or whatever. And they had been planning for, I don't know, a year or two to roll out a, a whole new line that was going to radically transform the business. They were going to get into uh, ready-to-eat baked goods. So now instead of just baking mixes, it would be, you know, sort of boxes of donuts or whatever. And then the pandemic came along and, and like you said, it sort of did this really crazy thing in this very unexpected way to what people needed and the way that they were responding. And in the case of the baking mix world, turns out that ready-to-eat baked goods plummeted in sales and baked <laughs> baking mixes uh, skyrocketed in the early days of the pandemic because people were stuck at home and they needed something to do. So they were making cakes. And Greg, had, Greg and his team had this decision to make, which was, do we continue on with this this change that we had been planning for a long time, thinking differently about the business, new marketing, new products, new, new, new supply chain, or do we shelve all of that and then double down on this on our older product line, which, you know, isn't all that exciting to do when you were preparing for a big change. 
and you know they decided we're gonna we're gonna shelve the big change. We're gonna kind of disorient ourselves, and we're gonna move back towards this core product of ours. And I asked Greg if that was a bummer, because you know when you prepare for something new, you get excited about it, you start to think of yourself differently. Was that a bummer, Greg? And he said no. And the reason was because he said, you know, it goes back to why did we start a business to begin with? Our mission is to bring joy to people with upgraded sweet-baked goods. That's what it's all about. He tossed it off, but it was really powerful because what he had done is he had crystallized what the mission of this company is in a way that is resilient to change. Because if, you're, if your value to the world is bringing joy to people through upgraded sweet bake goes, oh man, there's so many different ways to do that. It doesn't matter if one product line happens to be good or not because you are able to consistently provide that value based on whatever people need and want right now. And we can all do this as individuals too. I, I have done it myself. I used to, I spent years identifying myself as a, as a newspaper reporter. That's where I started. Then as a magazine editor. And I eventually realized Look, every time that I face or, or I feel threatened by a career change, my entire identity, identity feels lost. I need a version of what Greg has done for his company for myself. I came to it eventually. What was it? I tell stories in my own voice. That sentence. Nice, simple, two components. I tell stories, not magazine stories, not newspaper stories, not podcast stories, in my own voice. Now I'm setting the terms for how I act not telling other people's stories. I'm not being subsumed by a company and then doing whatever they tell me. This now gives me the freedom to recognize what changes and what doesn't. So whenever I'm in a moment of instability, I can say, you know what? I know what my core mission is. And I understand, therefore, how to orient myself towards this change rather than feel threatened by it. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that. I've always said, define the problem you solve. The methodologies can change. Mm. But what problem, what problem do you solve? And if you, if you really understand that, then you can go work anywhere. You know, th there were a couple other leadership lessons in terms of just baked goods. And, and one is don't double down on dumb, right? <laughs> I mean, if you, if you, if you, as the second you realize something isn't going to work, you're just getting stupider and stupider every day that you wake up and work on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's wishful thinking. And um, in writing, as you know, because you've written a book, there's a, a saying, you've got to be able to kill your darlings. Yeah. And something that doesn't work, you, you got to kill it. I think there's a leadership lesson there. I'm really curious as to, you know, you thought a lot about this. What happens if you don't change? I mean, did you study some train wrecks, <laughs> uh, people who didn't, who didn't figure it out? Well, sure. I, st I, studied a, I studied a bunch of them. And look, I, you know, there are the classic ones, right? Uh, there's, the, there's the blockbusters and the Kodak. Blockbuster and video, stuff, right? I was about to say, yeah. Yeah. What I, what I really love is, <laughs> is, is hearing familiar things in totally new ways. Like, what's the thing that we missed because we feel like we understand something too well? And one of my favorite insights into, a, into a, a kind of change disaster came from this guy. Uh, his name is Hamza Mudassir. He's a, um, a disruption expert uh, in, in the UK. And he was telling me about this really interesting theory about what killed Kodak. He said, look, everybody knows the story that Kodak was you know, it was instrumental in the development of the digital camera, and then they basically shelved it uh, and uh, and allowed other people to come along and develop it, and, and that's what ultimately undercut the business. But, so, you know, there's another way of looking at this, and that is that the thing that killed Kodak wasn't the digital camera. The thing that killed Kodak was Facebook. Because follow it. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. 
you and you and I are we're old enough to remember uh, what those first digital cameras were like, right? They were pretty crappy. So I remember what I did is that I would I had my regular film camera for the photos that I was taking seriously, and then I would have this kind of like junky digital camera that would produce these kind of grainy digital photos that I would just goof around with, and nobody saw that thing as a replacement to film. And the thing that made the difference was when Facebook came along and gave the ultimate use case. Because now suddenly there was a place to put all your digital photos and a place in which to share them. And so you stopped realizing, you stopped needing those shoeboxes full of photos because now there was a way in which these digital photos made sense in your life. And that was the thing that ultimately turned the tide. And the reason why Hamza likes that story is because he says, look, the, the problem that happens when you're a company that has leaned so heavily into efficiency, into doing the thing that you're already doing, but faster, better, and cheaper, is that you come to a pretty narrow understanding of who your competition is and what disruption looks like. And so you start to think, if you're Kodak, well, my competition are people who make a camera film. Uh, and so I got to make sure that I'm selling better and cheaper camera film. And then also, I guess, because I've got this idea of digital camera, I'm going to have to keep an eye out for that. But in truth, disruption comes from a completely unexpected source. And that's the reason why it slams into you so hard, because it's not coming from your expected competition. And so when you are not building ideas of change into your company, when you're not thinking about how you can constantly be resilient and resourceful and, and adaptive, what's going to happen is that you're going to be very unaware of how something that seems totally outside of your world is going to impact your world. And that's what Facebook did to Kodak. As we near quarter four, change is everywhere in budgets, teams, and customer needs. Having the right data to make the right calls can be the difference between growing big or going home. With HubSpot CRM platform, a single source of truth means your business is supported by a single system that unites all your teams and your data. Complicated and disconnected systems are difficult to implement, tricky to use, and slow down work. With HubSpot's connected customer platform, real-time data empowers your team to make informed decisions that help your business and your customers grow better together. Learn how HubSpot can make your business grow better at HubSpot.com. You know, there's one thing that's really clear as I talk to small business owners every week, and that's that they need a plan. They need a plan to follow as they grow their small business. I started my business without a plan and probably, ah, gosh, in the 10 years I've been running a business, I bet I've wasted four of those just chasing down uh, ideas that didn't really help me grow my company. The truth is a plan is actually very, very simple. Uh, there are six frameworks that you need to know. And if you know those six frameworks, you have a plan to grow a small business. You know what you are doing. That's exactly what you get at businessmadesimple.com. You get a plan to optimize revenue and profit. You need email addresses. You need focus on three economic objectives. You need a clear marketing message. You need to invite the customer into a story. That's our sales framework. You need to manage your cash flow so you don't run out. All of that is part of the plan that is available to you at businessmadesimple.com. Plus, I host a live stream. You get access to me every month live. You can actually ask me a question. Join thousands and thousands of business owners just like you who have a plan to optimize revenue and profit. If you join Business Made Simple, you will have a plan too. Go to businessmadesimple.com and get your plan. Optimize revenue and profit, and you will not only survive, you will thrive. Go to businessmadesimple.com. And now, back to the show.
how can a company, you know, I've got 30 employees. So how does yeah. a small business like me, or even if you have five employees or two employees, how do you build in a routine process that allows you to be aware of change and adapt when there is no panic? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I'm guilty just like everybody else is. You wake up and you realize orders have been cut in half overnight. It, boy, it certainly breeds a lot of innovation. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind of like a toothache. You, a toothache drives you to the dentist better than anything else. And, and and how do you stay innovative when you're not when you don't have that toothache? It's a, I mean it's a really great question. I think first of all you have to structure your company in a way in which there are people who are incentivized to be thinking about this and who are taken very seriously. You know, something that I hear a lot from um, from kind of innovation leaders is that the worst thing a company can do is create an innovation department. Uh, you see it, you see it all the time, right? You know, you'll see. I, I guarantee you, ninety yeah. percent of the people listening were thinking, "Oh, we need an innovation department." Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad you <laughs> shot that down so quickly. Right. It's, it's, it's a, you know, <laughs> because what's the problem with an innovation department? The problem is that now you've basically identified this separate organization. There's this separate group of people who are not core to the mission of the company. They're off on the side somewhere, and their job is innovation, which, first of all, is very hard to define, but also is gonna is gonna just produce all of these ideas that aren't going to be core and to and, and seen as core to the to the future of the of the brand. And so it's what we what we need to do first of all is is structurally you need people who are very very aware of what your consumers want and need. You should be in touch on a on, on just a, a constant basis with your consumer and and making sure that you're doing that in a way in which it's going beyond what you think your consumer wants. I, I'll tell you, this is a slight tangent, but it's just um, it just makes me think of it. So a friend of mine named Rochelle DeVoe is a, a consumer insights researcher. And we were talking not long ago about how she struggles sometimes to explain the work that she does because she will meet CEOs and she will say, look, you, I'll tell you your problem. Your problem is that you don't understand your consumer as well as you think you do. And people they don't like that. Uh, they think that they do understand their consumer very well. And, and then she will explain all the things that she does and the processes. And, and you know, Michelle was explaining it to me. And I was like, Michelle, I, I, like, I understand what you do and I'm still having a hard time following you. So can you just tell me a story? Tell me a story. Because like you said, Don, like people love stories. Stories help people understand things. So she says, okay, she was recently working with this sock company and it was this company that was started by this uh, athlete and she made these compression socks. These were athletic compression socks. And the company grew for a while, and then it's, and then growth started to flatline, which is when they went to Rochelle. So here's what Rochelle does. Rochelle has this process where she identifies, you got to identify your best consumers, right? Uh, identify the people who, who are most loyal, who are buying the most product, who are telling the most people. You identify them, and then you understand what's going on in their lives. How does this brand fit into their lives? Uh, how does it not fit into their lives? And then you know you understand basically what people need, what's shifted, and how to serve them. And she comes back with this fascinating report that like, blows the socks off of this uh, founder. And uh, and what she tells the founder is that you've been talking to athletes and you've been framing this as an athletic sock company. But in fact, your best customers aren't athletes. Your best customers are people who work on their feet all day. They're like nurses. You are, you are succeeding right now despite yourself because you have reached a lot of these people, but you've been talking to the wrong people. So once you understand, right? And like that's a thing that happened on its own because at first, this company... You know, it, it was it was born as an athletic sock company. That's who it went to first. Surely, that's who it reached. It started within her own network, but by as it grew, it started to reach these other people, and she wasn't aware of it. And so, once they knew that, they knew how to reorient the company towards people who are working on their feet all day. The messaging changed. the The way in which to think about the product changed, and and as a result, 
growth just exploded. And, and I tell this story to, to show you that like, look, having a bunch of people who are like specifically thinking about innovation, great. But making sure that you are tying together everybody who is incentivized to grow this brand so that we understand what people need and what they need now and how that may have changed and how you need to bring new, fresh ideas into this company and take them very, very seriously rather than just holding on to what used to work. Because otherwise, what you will do is you will get stuck making a more efficient product that people don't want because you are not reaching them in the way that they need. I love that. That It, it really is brilliant. And most people, I think, they're trying to build products that will give them the experience of winning the lottery. Yeah. And that's, that's really not how it works. What, what you've got to do is build a product and then innovate, 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 innovate. You never stop innovating. There's no ticket that says now you're done. You don't have to do anything <laughs> else, at least not for most of us. Uh, and the people who did, quote unquote, win the lottery, you know, Elon Musk or Jeff, or Jeff Bezos or something like that, they did exactly what you're talking about in order to win the lottery. And, and you forget all the things that all those extremely successful people did that sucked. I mean, like I remember, I remember being a fast. Com- I remember being an editor at Fast Company when, um, like, the Amazon Fire Phone came out. Remember, and that was like a massive flop. Yes. And uh, you know, like the the press was treating it like, oh, Jeff Bezos. You know, he wants to be more than just a cheap retailer online, but he's not getting it because he doesn't know how to build this stuff. But you know what? I bet that inside of Amazon, they probably see that thing as a massive success because although it didn't work, it taught them a whole lot about a marketplace. I interviewed Michael Dell not long ago, and um, and he told me that he keeps product failures in his office as a great reminder of what you learn when you fail. Because every time that they put something out and it didn't work, it taught them something, something really important. And then they grew as a result, which is the reason why he likes keeping those things around. I, gosh, I, I love it. This is a masterclass in in leadership. It really is. So many people will fail once and that's it. They think they're a failure. And I, the, the people who tend to make it, you know, they do two things at the same time, which seem contradictory. One is they learn from their failures. They understand, oh, I get it. We failed because of this. So let's change this. And then Five minutes later, they can't remember having failed. It's, it's this it's this contradictory sort of thing that happens in the brain of people who succeed. Let me ask you one last question. Sure. I, I recently our our whole team was together for an all staff meeting, and we did this. Uh, we took a break from the all staff meeting and did a little exercise. Divided up into teams. Kari Ellen on our staff gave us all a paper bag. It had five or six hard spaghetti straws in it, you know, like little poles of spaghetti with a marshmallow. Sure. And then she said, okay, which team can make the tallest tower? Uh, the marshmallow has to be on top and it can't fall down. And, you know, gave us 10 minutes. And then she, in, in talking about like what we learned and what we didn't learn, she said, the, the studies actually show that there's a demographic who do very well at this. And what do you think that demographic is? And we were engineers, you know, executives, or, you know who they were? They were kindergartners. Yeah. Kindergartners built the best towers. And I think this is what you're talking about in your book is something that was in us when we were kids and we've lost it. That ability to adapt and change and accept and sort of like an improv theater actor, be able to say yes and and what's next and forget our failures and have fun because it's really in the play. So, I I mean, I love that you you say that because I was actually just reading some interesting research into this and the way that children solve problems. Um, They found all these ways in which children compensate for their problem-solving deficiencies, right? I mean, you know, children have a lot of problem-solving deficiencies. They're not really, they they have short attention spans. 
they have bad memories but what they what they what they have that adults don't have is that they have basically no set way in which they think a problem has to be solved and so what they do is they 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 creatively come up with additional ways to solve problems there, there was just research that literally just came out and this isn't in the book because it just came out like a couple of weeks ago and I was reading it it came out of the Max Planck Institute in Berlin they had given adults and children this uh, pattern matching test or something. And it was hard. It was going to be a hard test that children were, were, were not going to do that well on. But the thing was that if you would recognize, and it, the instructors didn't tell you about this, it was nowhere in the instructions, but if you recognized like a color pattern that was kind of built into the thing, it becomes a lot easier to solve the problem. And, uh, and, and what they found was on the regular test, trying to follow the regular instructions, children did much worse than adults. But a roughly the same percentage of children as adults, which was about 25%, recognized the color thing and therefore were able to, do, you know, were able to do a lot better. And the point of the researchers was, you know, we as adults think that our ability to solve problems is rests upon our ability to focus. And therefore, when we are teaching children how to solve problems, one of the things that we're teaching them is to focus. But instead, children have an innate ability to, to develop on the fly, kind of shortcuts to solving problems. They're creative problem solvers by looking at a wide range of ways to approach something. And that's what we should be encouraging. We should be trying to teach people how to solve problems in lots of different ways, how to be problem solvers rather than how to take one tool and try to use it to solve a problem. And yeah, I, I think that when I look at people who are really good at navigating change, Ultimately, what I see are people who have, in some way or another, been able to distance themselves from what they think is the only way to do something. Because that is ultimately the thing that I think destroys us, is when we think there's only one way to do this. And sometimes people can do it proactively. They can constantly be rethinking, how can they be doing this better? But also, you know, frankly, crisis does drive people to make changes that are, I, I like to call them, uh, moments where people reconsider the impossible, which is to say that they get shoved outside of the boundaries that they have built in which they think the good ideas are inside and the bad ideas are outside. And they must instead say, well, you know what? The things that I thought worked no longer do, so I got to reconsider the impossible. I got to reconsider the things that I thought wouldn't work, but now maybe actually will. I'll, I'll give you just a super quick example. I talked to this woman. Her name is Lena. She has a wig store in Baltimore called Lena's Wigs. And that store used to run as a storefront. And, uh, uh, you know, you know, a storefront, people walk in uh, off the street and they can shop for wigs. And then the pandemic came along and she could not have her doors open so that anybody could just wander in off the street. And so she's thinking, how do I run this store? And so the only thing that she think of is something that isn't some like radical, crazy idea, but something that she had always thought was a terrible idea for her business. And that was appointment only. Because, you know, why would you add friction to your shopping experience? She never wanted to do appointment only, but now was the only option, so she did it. And what she discovered, to her great delight, was two things. Number one, profits and sales went up. And number two, consumer happiness went up. Why? Well, because once she moved to appointment only, what she discovered was that she had been operating the store where she was paying a person to greet people who walked in off the street. But you know who doesn't buy wigs? 
People who walk in off the street. They like to browse wigs, but they don't really like to buy wigs. You know who does like to buy wigs? People who are shopping for very personal reasons, because generally because of a health or a religious reason. Those people do not want to be buying wigs with a bunch of randos off the street. They would much prefer to make an appointment and have a private experience. So here, Lena, because she thought she had to run this store in one way, was in fact actually spending money to serve people who were not her customer, and she was less aware of the needs of her actual customer. And this change forced her to reconsider the impossible and therefore actually find a completely better way to operate her business. Look, if you can do that proactively, that's wonderful and you should, but also take advantage of crisis because sometimes that's going to be the thing that's going to force you to discover the better option. Jason Pfeiffer, his book is Build for Tomorrow. It's been delightful to talk to you. I think we could keep talking for several hours if we wanted to. Oh, this is so fun. But you don't make any money on that, so we'll have to buy the book and hear the rest of your wisdom. Jason, uh, I hope you come back when your next book comes out. I'd love to. Thanks so much. I'm going to read Jason's book. It's available now on Amazon. I'm going to grab a copy because you know we need to know how to change. The more adaptive we all are, the better things are going to go for us. It is a survival mechanism. I said at the beginning, it's like a self-defense class. And uh, I I think I might uh, want to learn a little more from Jason Pfeiffer. It was a fantastic interview. Well, as you know, at the end of every episode, I give you a plan of action from today's coaching conversation. These are the main takeaways you can immediately implement to strengthen and grow your business. Of course, today is all about innovation and change. And there was a lot that Jason talked about. It's worth listening to the the conversation again. But here's what I got from it. First, define the problem that you solve. And and he worded it a little bit differently, know what you offer. I'm just big on understand the problem that you solve. The methodology can change, uh, and you you constantly want to change the methodology in which you deliver the solution to that problem. But if you don't know the problem, you're toast. Then stay innovative even when uh, there's not a crisis. Go to the dentist even though you don't have a toothache, right? That's how you prevent toothaches in the future. And I love what Jason said. He said, be in tune with your best customers and figure out how to better solve their problems. Never stop innovating. Listen, sitting down, if you if you're business has grown big enough that you you can now be removed from your customers, which allows you to get more work done and keep your head down. That is not an asset. That is not a strength. That is going to lead to a weakness. And the way to innovate is to continue to say, how are you using our products? How are you using our competitors' products? What do they have that we don't have? Uh, where's their hesitancy? Where were you confused? That is the path to innovation. That's the path to innovation. You know what I I think you should do? I think you should set a six-month countdown clock. And you should say, at the end of this six months, we will not be able to do business the way we're doing business now because we are going to be disrupted. Therefore, how should we innovate and how should we change? And just every six months, just change a few things in the way that you do business to make it better and better. And that's how you grow. Okay, so you try that a few times and some stuff doesn't work. What is uh, step three? Step three is understand that you're going to fail and be resilient about it. Learn your lessons from whatever failures uh, you have and then forget you had them and get excited about the new idea. And if you can do that, I'm telling you, there's no stopping somebody who won't quit. You can stop almost anybody else, but if they won't quit they're going to succeed. And if you won't quit after the second or third failure, you are going to be fine. You are going to be fine. You can change. And what are you not going to quit? You're not going to quit providing great solutions to your customers. And you're always going to ask, how can we make our solutions uh, easier to access, easier to use, be able to solve their problems better? 
innovate, 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 and you are going to be fine. All right, everybody. Thanks as always for listening to the Business Made Simple podcast, where we help you build your business like an airplane so you can fly far and fast. See you next week.